0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. My name is Dr Jeremy Summit, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow here at the CIS, and also the Director of our Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program. Tonight's event is our annual Helen Hughes Lecture and by a wondrous piece of logistics, we've managed to align the planets to have a lecture about a perennially important American subject on Independence Day. So (laughs) happy 4th of July to everyone. Before I introduce the topic and the speaker, I'd just like to say a few words about um, the lecture. We inaugurated the Helen Hughes Lecture in 2016 to honour the memory of Professor Helen Hughes, who for many years was a senior fellow at the CIS. We did this not only to remember her legacy of outstanding and fearless scholarship but also to honour her work as a mentor and advisor to many young people who she assisted with her career. So we basically thought it would be appropriate to create an event that gave a platform to a person who we think uh, is an emerging thinker who has something important to say about an important topic. Last year's lecturer was uh, Claire Lehman, the editor of Quillette, an online magazine, which I'm sure you're all aware of, and she spoke about the rise of identity politics within the university. The year before that, we had John Slater, who was then of the H.R. Nickel Society before going on to the Menzies Research Centre, and he spoke about industrial relations. And the inaugural lecture in 2016 was delivered by Jacinta Price, the, ind- the brave Indigenous advocate who recently ran for federal parliament in the Northern Territory. Now I'm sure many of you are familiar with Jacinta and her work and it gives me a great amount of pleasure to announce that just this week Jacinta has agreed to join the CIS to head up our Indigenous program. You'll hear more about Jacinta and the program and what we will be doing and why in coming weeks but I think it's appropriate that this news really comes in the week that we hold the Helen Hughes Lecture because we're really keen to see that program perpetuate the legacy of Helen's groundbreaking work on Indigenous policy in the 2000s that really changed the debate about Indigenous affairs in this country. Tonight's speaker is Professor Michael Ondaci. Michael is Pro Vice-Chancellor, Arts and Academic Culture and Professor of American History at the Catholic University. That's his uh, recently promoted title and at the risk of embarrassing him I'm going to uh, give a few more biographical details. Awarded his PhD with distinction by the University of Western Australia in 2008, Michael is an award-winning researcher and teacher and a regular commentator on US history and politics in the Australian and international media. He has been a senior visiting research fellow at the University of Oxford and was recently selected by the US Embassy in Australia for the International Visitors Leadership Program, the premier professional exchange program of the US Government. In 2012, the Australian Academy of Humanities awarded Michael the Max Crawford Medal which is the most prestigious award for achievement and promise in the humanities in Australia. The Crawford Medal recognises early or mid-career researcher whose publications make an exceptional contribution to the understanding of humanities disciplines by the general public. All this is to say that we're in very good hands tonight as Michael guides us through the perpetual minefield that is race in America particularly in the strange times in which we live, which are the times of Trump, the sorry the age of Trump and the age of identity politics and the intersections between these two phenomenons really represent a genuine crossroads for American society and how it deals with questions of race. It's a real pleasure to also say that I'm introducing a friend tonight. Uh, Michael and I met through uh, the great late great and sorely missed Australian historian John Hurst who had a always had a great eye for talent, at least in one of our cases. As well as always having very amusing, if not astounding, tales to tell of uh, working inside the Contemporary Academy, talking with Michael has really helped um, and talking to him about racial issues in the US has really shaped, helped shape my thinking about similar issues here in Australia, particularly on Indigenous affairs, which I know is a subject which Michael takes a close and increasing professional interest in as well. So this is why I both thought of Michael and the topic for tonight's lecture, and I know why we're in good hands as we traverse what can be very treacherous grounds. Michael's going to speak for about 30 minutes, and then I'll rejoin him on the stage for a conversation before we take some questions from the floor. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Michael Andachi.
1: Well, thanks for that very generous introduction, Jeremy. Uh, The only thing you left out which i feel somewhat obliged to note is that i'm the michael and Dachi who didn't write the english patient <laughs> uh, there there is there is actually a family connection but if audience members thought they'd be hearing tonight from the world famous novelist um, well you were wrong uh, you've got the michael and Dutchie whose books are read primarily by his mother and she really likes them <laughs> um, look the, the the title of my talk uh tonight is america at the crossroads racial politics in the trump era And I'm going to dive in to that shortly. But before I do, I'd like to obviously thank the Centre for Independent Studies for the invitation uh, to deliver the annual Helen Hughes Lecture. And I'd also like to acknowledge the late Helen Hughes. Uh, I didn't know Professor Hughes personally, but I uh, know her work and I certainly know what she cared about most, uh, seeing the integration of Aboriginal people as full members of Australian society. Uh, Professor Hughes ruffled feathers, and quite a few of them, Uh, She rejected the continued push for political solutions to problems uh, of the most disadvantaged Indigenous Australians. In fact, she argued that government policies designed to address these problems had only exacerbated them. Indigenous exceptionalism had entrenched exceptional exceptional levels of human misery, welfare dependence, social dysfunction, the appalling gaps in health and educational outcomes and, and so on. In response, Helen Hughes championed a New Deal for Aboriginal people, starting out as a Marxist and ending up as a classical liberal. It's a familiar kind of trajectory. uh, She spent the last decade of her life writing about what she believed were the key areas of Indigenous policy reform, education, housing, property rights, health, crime and justice. She believed that the market would be the agent of liberation for Aboriginal people. And you didn't always have to agree with Helen Hughes to recognise that her frank and fearless talk on race in support of the nation's most disadvantaged people was sincere, important, refreshing. Questioning received wisdom, challenging orthodoxy. That's what she did. Uh, Professor Hughes made, in the words of Noel Pearson, and I quote here, a notable and noble contribution to the cause of our people, Aboriginal people. So let me say again, I feel very privileged uh, to be here this evening. The 4th of July is an appropriate date to draw inspiration from Helen Hughes to question some of the prevailing wisdom in US racial politics and put the current situation in better perspective. Uh, This is important uh, because more than a decade after America elected its first black president, fears of worsening race relations are palpable. A recent poll uh, from the Pew Research, I know we don't listen to polls these days, but um, found that 58% of Americans think that race relations are generally bad and 65% believe it has become more acceptable to express racist views since Donald Trump was elected president. Uh, president Trump has described himself as the least racist person that you've ever encountered. But the truth is, uh, he's been dogged by racial controversy for years. Uh, since he became president, there's been the deadly violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, political storms over the over Confederate statues uh, and the national anthem, and the administration's reaction to illegal immigration, the US at Mexico border, and there's been a whole bunch of other stuff as well. We also know that before 2017, Donald Trump had assembled a long record of comments spanning some five decades on issues involving African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, Muslims, Jews, and immigrants. 2010, he emerged as a political force pushing the Bertha controversy um, that Barack Obama, it was really a con- conspiracy theory rather than a controversy, that pr- uh, Barack Obama was not born in the United States. So the President's ten year on race is really there for all to see. None of this should be ignored by the media, it's legitimate news. Personally, uh, I find quite a lot of President Trump's rhetoric, distasteful and unhelpful, but it's become a major and convenient distraction. For some, there is no other acceptable way to view the Trump phenomenon other than through a racial prism. For such people, Trump is the embodiment of white supremacy, while Trump supporters are akin to those who cheered on lynch mobs a century ago. Now, this kind of analysis has made substantive discussions substantial discussions on race all but impossible and it's distorted the political picture race in america runs much deeper than donald trump to understand today's contemporary racial landscape uh, we need to be looking beyond this one man and beyond one election now that said i'm not going to try and cover every racial issue and every racial group tonight uh, i often used to say to my students before I went into the dark world of academic administration and leadership that when you try to do everything, uh, you often end up doing nothing. So my focus tonight is going to be on African Americans. Specifically, I'm going to use contemporary black reality as the lens through which to understand racial politics in the Trump era. Historically, the status of black people, the quality of of their lives, and the range of possibilities which they could realistically achieve through their own endeavours has been the essential litmus test for the viability of American democracy. From slavery to segregation to second-class citizenship, their experience has been the distance between America's rhetoric versus its reality, between what America has said about itself and what it's uh, actually been. So how black Americans are faring today, the progress that they've made, And the the challenges that they still face can tell us a lot about race in America uh, and a lot about the state of American democracy. It's customary uh, to begin discussions of black life in America by highlighting the problems and the barriers that confront African Americans still today. Now, I'm going to get to this, uh, but I'm going to begin by highlighting the progress that black Americans have made since the civil rights era. And it's sometimes easy to miss this story amid all the really bad news that we hear. Viewed in a historical perspective, and I'm a historian, uh, the legal and political transformation of US relations since World War II is a remarkable achievement that powerfully confirms the virtue of America's political institutions. Uh, Official segregation, which some as late as 1960 were saying would live forever, is dead. The caste system of social domination enforced with open violence has been eradicated. Whereas two generations ago, most Americans were indifferent or hostile to blacks' demands for equal citizenship rights, now the ideal of equal opportunity is upheld by laws uh, and widely embraced in politics. A large and stable black middle class has emerged. And, the, and black participation in the economic, political and cultural life of the country has expanded considerably. There has also been this story about a black guy who's twice been elected president. This is all good news and it deserves to be celebrated I think. Let me drill down into this a bit more though. Today 50%, 57% of black Americans are considered middle class compared to 35% in the early 1970s. The black unemployment rate is at a record low. Under President Obama, it plummeted from 17% in 2010 to 7.8% in 2016, while under President Trump, it's fallen further to 6.3%. Black home ownership has recently risen and so have wages for black workers as the labour market has tightened. In the early 1960s, over 40% of black men lived in poverty. Today, that figure is 20%. And contrary to popular perception, uh, recent research suggests that racial biases have become less, not more, uh, pronounced in America. A new study by two Harvard psychologists based on 4.4 million results from an online test of Americans' racial biases has found that implicit bias bias based on race has decreased by 17% over the past decade, while explicit bias has decreased by 37%. Recent housing patterns appear to point in this direction as well. Whites are steadily moving into predominantly black neighbourhoods in search of lower housing prices, while the share of blacks moving into traditionally white suburban and rural areas is increasing too. Pew's data also shows that the share of Republican-aligned Americans who say the nation needs to do more to ensure racial equality increased from 30% in 2009 to 36% in 2017, while the corresponding share for Democrats, who said the same, increased from 57% to 81%. So I don't think America's become more racist, but on the margins, there's certainly a lot of noise to suggest that racial polarisation is getting much worse. Now, we see evidence of this polarisation on the fringes of the Republican Party, where a resurgent White nationalism has found a home and of course much has been written about this and I've spoken about this uh, in the past. But we also see it among the far left black activists who loudly proclaim that they are continuing the work of the civil rights movement but who spend most of their time scouring the nation for sightings of confederate flags, use of the N-word by white people and instances of cultural appropriation. These activists, many of them associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, acknowledge virtually no progress on race and often seem more intent on denouncing the people they hate, Trump, his supporters, police, than on actually addressing the concrete problems that make life hardest for the most disadvantaged black people. We should talk about these problems um, seriously, maturely, uh, honestly because they've become increasingly dire since the civil rights era. As more and more black Americans took took advantage of the opportunities created by the civil rights movement, the black community effectively fragmented along class lines. Beginning in the 1960s, a large group of black Americans left the inner city for middle-class suburban life, leaving behind a black underclass of very disadvantaged poor, for whom the civil rights movement might as well have never happened. So in cities uh, across America and in many rural areas of the Old South, the situation confronting the the poorest black Americans since the 1970s has been grim and it's been getting worse. The crime, uh, the drug addiction, uh, family breakdown, unemployment, poor school performance, Uh, welfare dependency and general decay in these communities constitute a blight on American society. These problems are virtually unrivaled in scale and severity by anything to be found elsewhere in the industrial West. This is the paradox of modern black America. Never have blacks had so much legal freedom, yet there are record numbers of black people in prison. Today blacks make up around 13% of the overall population of the United States, but nearly 50% of the incarcerated population. Many black inner city communities have become concentrated pockets of crime and misery. So in 2016, nearly 8,000 black men were murdered in the United States. 3% were killed by whites, the rest by people of colour. Less than 40% of the black men in many of these communities, gradu- never graduate from high school. In the most disadvantaged of these communities, beyond uh, somewhere between 60 and 85% of black men are unemployed. Uh, in the 1960s, unmarried women were the main breadwinners for around 20% of black households. That figure is now 72% and it's higher among blacks in the inner cities. This is not a moral observation so much as a practical one because we know that there's a powerful connection between poverty and single parent households. Today, even as the black middle class is the biggest in history, the biggest in history, African-Americans are nearly three times more likely to be in poverty than white Americans. So while acknowledging uh, black progress, we also need to look closely at black life in the inner city. That is the world largely abandoned by America In what I'm calling the post civil rights era. So let me make uh, an obvious point. Clearly racism hasn't been vanquished from American life. Most people agree that it still exists but the real question is to what extent does it remain a serious problem for blacks and to what extent does it explain modern day racial disparities. The issue then is one of degree. Uh, My view is that when It comes to racism, too many people think in a binary fashion. Either there is no racism or there is racism, which, no matter its nature or extent, indicts America as a land with bigotry at its core. The Black Lives Matter movement activists obviously fall into the second camp. They view the American past and the American present as a conflict between oppressors who seek to preserve white supremacy and those who seek to destroy it. They insist that racism remains in the structures of society and in the invisible crannies of people's minds. So accordingly, they, set, they see it as their moral duty to keep racism front and centre in discussions about contemporary black disadvantage. Racism serves as a kind of all-purpose explanation for this. So to solve the biggest black problems, they argue the legacy of slavery must be acknowledged, white America must reform itself, racism must end. This is what the Black Lives Matter activists and their supporters essentially say. Now, I have a slightly uh, different view. Uh, I believe that if the goal is genuinely to address black disadvantage, then we need First, to take black history seriously, and we then need to be a little more sophisticated and a little more pragmatic in how we evaluate the contemporary landscape and how we propose solutions. The first point I would make is that it's simply not plausible to argue that the legacy of slavery explains the trauma in today's poorest black communities. These problems did not exist in the first hundred years after emancipation, even though the poverty rates at the time were much higher and racism was rampant and still legal. The Harvard sociologist, decorated Harvard sociologist, William Julius Wilson, has written extensively about how in poor black communities throughout the first half of the 20th century, rates of inner-city joblessness, family breakdown, welfare dependency and serious crime were significantly lower than in later years and did not reach catastrophic levels until the mid-1970s. Blacks today hear plenty about what they can't achieve due to the legacy of slavery and not enough about what they did in fact achieve, notwithstanding hundreds of years of bondage followed by years of legal segregation. Racial gaps were actually narrowing in the hundred years after slavery. So an obvious question to ask would be, Did the legacy of slavery skip over a couple of generations and then reassert itself in the mid-1970s? The answer, of course, is no. Other factors must be primarily responsible for the problems we've witnessed over the past 40 to 50 years. Deindustrialisation, which hit blacks living in the cities particularly hard in the 1970s, rising incarceration rates, the decline of the stable two-parent family, and a range of other issues deeply embedded within the American political economy. These structural differences shouldn't be indicted as racist simply because there are racial disparities. But this is what tends to happen. Uh, In discussions about race, emotions often trump facts and evidence, or evidence is cherry-picked to drive a certain kind of narrative. Too often there is a narrative where the villains, i.e. racists, the heroes, victims of racism, are clear-cut. And where all one needs to do to stand on the right side of history is to engage in a bit of moral sanctimony. Condemn law enforcement. Get behind reparations for slavery. Speak out against statues of civil war, civil war figures. Refuse to stand for the national anthem. That kind of thing. I mean, let me, let me be clear here. M- my problem with the Black Lives Matter movement is not that its supporters have called attention to the small number of white police officers who have recently killed unarmed black men. There's a long history to this issue in the United States. It's legitimate to raise it and it's legitimate to discuss it. My problem is that the discussion is taking place without reference to the full picture. A police officer in America is actually 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be killed by a police officer. Racially motivated attacks on blacks certainly should not be ignored or played down, but neither should racially motivated attacks perpetrated by blacks. When the media discuss relations between poor black communities and law enforcement without including data on black crime rates, it's hugely problematic. One incident, or a small number of incidents, can soon become a kind of shorthand reference to a generic phenomenon of African American oppression. And in all of this, uh, let's not forget the fact that thousands of black men are killing each other every year. My view is that Black Lives Matter needed to take a much stronger position on the idea that black lives matter when black people take them too. There needed to be a second wing to this movement that went into black communities and worked in a railway on the black-on-black murders. Uh, an important opportunity has been missed here. Reparations for slavery is another example. The reparations issue has been around in America since the end of slavery but has lately enjoyed a resurgence thanks to the efforts of activists, intellectuals and politicians such as Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker. The problem is that large majorities of the public have consistently opposed reparations and it's simply never going to happen. No Congress is going to pass and no President is going to sign a bill that takes money from the great majority of American voters to pay a debt they don't feel they owe. Think of the people whose ancestors came to America after the Civil War. Think of the people whose ancestors lived outside the American South. Think of the majority of white Southerners whose ancestors were too poor to buy slaves, even if they wanted to. Reparations are a political dead end that even if they could somehow be calculated and legislated would make race relations worse, not better. I'm worried about the day after reparations are paid when all the problems I have documented this evening remain and people are able to wash their hands of any responsibility for these inequities and say, but you black Americans have been paid. You black Americans have been paid. Now, to be sure, America needs some reckoning with the racial past. I'm not suggesting um, it doesn't, but reparations encourage the wrong kind of reckoning. A quick transfer of funds to compensate for the centuries-long denial of the humanity of a people would not restore families or fix schools that are failing black children or create more business owners and better employment opportunities in black communities. So no substantive difference to the lives of the most disadvantaged black Americans. The impractical nature of reparations as an idea was in fact recognised by many 1960s civil rights figures, uh, including Bayard Rustin, who organised the 1963 March on Washington, where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, Rustin was also one of Martin Luther King's closest advisers. He rejected reparations as, quote, a ridiculous idea and an illogical, diversionary and paltry way out for guilt-ridden whites. So rather than demanding reparations now Efforts to address the problems in black America must focus on policies and programs that take seriously the matter of black agency, because helping people to help themselves is ultimately the best way to reshape, reform and remake communities. Some in the Black Lives Matter movement object to such suggestions, insisting that before people talk about black agency, they need to talk about white behaviour. But I'm uncomfortable with this argument. It effectively reduces black people to puppets at the end of a string that white people are pulling and it casts white people as the sole agents of black delivery. Uh, I don't understand that at all because, I mean, let's be clear, nobody is going to save the most disadvantaged black Americans. In the 1960s Martin Luther King and other black leaders spoke openly about the need for black people to assume primary responsibility for tackling some of the problems emerging in their communities even then. After remarking on the disproportionately high inner city crime rates, King told a black congregation in St Louis that, quote, "'We've also got to do something about our standards. "'We know there are many things wrong in the white world, "'but there are many things wrong in the black world too. "'We keep on blaming the white man. "'There are things we must do for ourselves.'" So in making this comment, King was recognising, I think, a fundamental truth. Yes, people are conditioned by their environment, by their genetic inheritance, by their social context, but there's no possibility for change unless they and we presume the possibility of agency. That said, I'm not suggesting that social concern and activism should cease. Protest has been... For a long time, an ennobling tradition in black American life, and there remains, understandably, a great reverence for it. It was protest that opened the way to black freedom for black pe- for, to freedom for black people. Uh, protest, not immigration, was black Americans' way into the American dream. What I am suggesting is that today's activists should refocus their efforts and proceed without the current irrationality that encourages black people to think of modern America as actively and reprehensibly racist and to feel that nothing can happen until the last vestige of racism has been extricated and white people think better of black people. The activists should recognise that more marches won't address the problem of absent parents and everything that flows from this, that more sit-ins won't lower black crime rates or narrow the racial gaps in education or employment or in health. Uh, That would be a good place for them to start, but I'm not holding my breath. Today's struggle, and I'm not sure whether struggle's the right word, but I'm going to use it because I can't think of another word. Uh, Today's struggle should focus on the biggest challenges in the nation's inner cities. How to get more of the black poor into work so that their children don't grow up thinking that employment is something that other people do. How to get black children out of failing inner city public schools and into private or charter schools which have a proven track record of narrowing the achievement gap. How to bring the black church back into the most disadvantaged black neighbourhoods and how to incentivise more black home ownership. Uh, I'd also like to see more childcare centres so it's easier for black single mothers to work. I'd like to see better transportation from cities to suburbs to expand black employment possibilities and more research on and funding for drug rehabilitation. Finally, uh, and I think very importantly, there should be a renewed focus on how to work constructively uh, with the police to achieve shared goals within black communities. It's often forgotten or perhaps it was just never known that aggressive policing and tough sentencing historically enjoyed the support of many law abiding black people who were very, very angry about decline and crime in their communities and, you know, they were disproportionately uh, its victims. I mean, this is pretty significant. in fact, uh, the black Harvard historian, Michael Fortner, has recently written a very fine book about this black silent majority. And that's what he calls it, the black silent majority. But anyway, I digress. Let me conclude um, by, by reiterating that the serious problems of the black poor were with us before President Trump and they will be with us long after he has departed the scene. That is why I have chosen not to focus on him this evening and why I don't think he should be the focus of any serious reckoning with black disadvantage in modern America. In my view, the only way to address the serious problems of the black poor is to talk Honestly about what the problems are, and then pragmatically about what the solutions might be what might be. Now, this hasn't happened. More than ten years after America elected its first black president, the question of whether African Americans are living in a post-racial America seems irrelevant. In fact, I don't even really know what that means. When it comes to the black poor, uh, we need to ask new and more substantive questions, in the spirit of Helen Hughes, and leave virtue signalling and other empty gestures at the door. Thanks very much.
0: Well, thank you, Michael. That was um, that was terrific. Um, I guess the major takeaway that I took from that is that. Whilst I know we'll draw some parallels, maybe with the indigenous issues here in Australia, but the constant, the constant solution that's looked for to these problems is always more politics, always more politics. But it's actually less politics in many of these many of these cases that's needed. I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate tonight, but as well as give you the opportunity to amplify some of your themes, and I guess we'll start where all of discussions about the US tend to start these days, which is with President Trump, and as we know. Um, president trump at any hour of any hour of the day or night is liable to say or tweet something that you know tramples to put it politely over you know pc pieties but i guess the bigger question is whether there is an element of political calculation behind what he sometimes has to say and the ov- most obvious example being the way he's played to you know the border protection issues um the southern border so the question is do you think that both his rhetoric and his, and his broader political strategy, that he is in some way consciously or maybe even unconsciously trying to reanimate the legacy of uh, racial politics in America and white supremacy?
1: I mean, white supremacy is a very loaded word I mean, it, or, or phrase. It has connotations, and I, I don't like to use the phrase in relation to Donald Trump. Um, there was a view leading up to his election that he was a fool and an idiot, and that stream of consciousness that we associate with him was, was Trump and there wasn't much more. Uh, I don't share that view. Um, uh, whilst I resist um, the label racist in relation to Trump, um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's fair enough to say that he knows what he's doing and it's fair enough to say that he knows that there are a pocket of supporters out there um, who who have a particular view of what the country should be and a particular view on the direction in which it has been heading um, in the lead-up to President Trump's election and a particular view that the direction is not one that they particularly like. Um, and when you know, when you look out on the world and you're a, uh, a former coal miner from West Virginia and you don't have a job and your son doesn't have a job um, and people are telling you that the future is bright and technology is going to change everything and um, diversity is a wonderful thing. Um, It's hard to be enthusiastic about that. I said to a friend the other day that uh, I don't know of any place where um, a multicultural or multiracial republic has been built successfully on a foundation of inequality uh, or anxiety about the future. And I think that's what we're what we have in pockets of America
0: So let me pick, pick that up let's try and look a bit more closely on the ground. what about you know the so-called deplorables and let's narrow it down to you know the white working class former base of the Democratic Party that people who voted for Trump and you know the normal explanation is that they rejected sort of elitism on the west Coast and the East Coast but also is there an element here that they also resented oh, well this is an argument that's put that they resented and struck back against minorities, well, obviously not women, women aren't a minority, but you know, women, blacks, other minorities who'd done relatively well, whereas they've been the victims of economic change. So is there a form of you know, what we might call white male identity politics in the US?
1: Look, it's really hard to say. There's no such thing as a monolithic Trump voter. Um, you know, um, I imagine... If you looked at some Trump voters, you, you might put the label racist next to them. But I don't think that's the majority. I think that's a small minority. Um, I, I go back to statistics on these things. The um, first thing I noticed after the 2016 election is that 60%, 67% of the white working class broadly defined voted for Trump. Now That basically meant that overnight the Republican Party became the party of working America which is not how it had always been, as you know, Um, I know that more blacks voted for Trump than voted for Romney and McCain. I know that a reasonable slab of Hispanics voted for Trump, that he won a reasonable amount of Asian Americans vote. Uh, Are we really saying that these people um, are so stupid that they would vote for someone who would, you know, bring out the lynch mobs again? I really, I, I don't believe that. Um, it's it's difficult to know. I mean, I think I used the word anxiety before. Um, again, I I think when you look at the fact that the only demographic in the OECD whose life expectancy is going down are white working class guys in America, right? Um, now we we can say that they're bigots. Um, You know, we can say that they're racist, we can say that they're sexist, um, but I don't think that's enough to satisfy curious minds, and I think there are multiple factors at play here, and historians and political scientists uh, should bring a multivaried analysis um, to to looking at the Trump phenomenon. One other thing I will say, though, um, when Hillary Clinton used um, that word deplorables, and I think the use of it as a noun is particularly significant um, um, because it was almost as if she was saying that, you know, the world would be better (laughs) if these people didn't Mm. exist, that, you know, empathy is not um, sympathy for people whose opinions you like. It's actually demonstrating a commitment to trying to understand, putting yourself in the shoes of people whose opinions Different from your own, and imagining life as they experience it. Um, I'm not suggesting for a minute that Trump is great on empathy either, mm. uh, but um, um, there's plenty of, um, of that to go around. Well, let's pick up the other
0: political side of this argument. And as you said, you know, we saw with the election of President Obama, we were meant to be entering this, America was meant to be entering this post racial period. But ironically, the way that that has played out is that. Uh, the Democrats have embraced wholeheartedly almost all forms of identity politics. And we saw that with you know, Hillary Clinton, with you know, the attempt to put together this sort of rainbow coalition that would you know, win her the White House, which actually didn't happen. It seems to me that the, the Democratic Party is almost uniquely um, uh, alienated from middle, middle America, but it's also in an extremely difficult political position because it's got a service, in a sense. The activist groups and identity groups that are now, you know, its base. Mm. So, how maybe in the specific context of dealing with with you know, black activism, how can it possibly hope to service that community, and at the same time not send a message to the rest of America that's inherently divisive and
1: off-putting? The put- I think put- it's a huge challenge for the Democratic Party. I mean, what what we'll see is, you know, during the primaries, all the candidates pushing out hard to the left, and then Retracting a lot of what they say um, as we get closer to to the election, and certainly um, the person who wins the nomination will be saying very different things when he or she's uh, contesting the election against Trump than they had said in the in the primaries. Uh, I was absolutely convinced um uh, as you know, and as our friend Peter Curdy knows uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton would win. I wasn't alone um that's the only my only defense. Um, because I looked at things, I looked at the polls for sleep which we don't do now um, but I looked at some of the, I looked at the changing demographics of the united states you know by 2042 uh, it'll be a majority non-white nation I thought well um, if the Democrats play politics to th- to those yeah. demographics um, and continue uh, to win over college fairly affluent college-educated, affluent whites, they'll, they'll win. I mean, that'll be enough. Um, well, we now know that's not the case. And so the challenge will be how do you message in a particular kind of way that you're talking about um, to one group of people and then come back and talk to, you know, the, the West Virginian coal miner that I'm talking about? Um, I don't know how you do it. I, I said to my wife the other day, you know, Scott Morrison's quiet Australians were Howard's battlers, who are Reagan's Democrats, who are Nixon's silent majority. Now, there are differences between those groups, um, but they all present a fundamental challenge to the other side of politics. And if I knew the answer to to what the Democrats should do, I'd be a a richer man. (laughs) Let's,
0: we'll turn to some of the bigger historical issues that you raised in a minute, but let's just sort of, Focus on the whole identity politics phenomenon, and that to me, that is a, is a fundamentally relies on a particular view of history, and that is that the oppressions of the past continue to shape social reality today. So we have books by people like Tanishi Coates, which is big behind the, the you know the Black Lives Matter movement, which talks about drawing a straight line between you know sh- police shootings of, of black unarmed black men, draw a straight line to to slavery. This is, as I say, this is very much the thinking behind Black Lives Matters. but, you know, Tanishi Coates is one of these... He's, he's an editor at The Atlantic magazine. He's one of these, you know, doing relatively well black middle-class people. So we drill, we drill down. We're really talking about a much more complicated racial picture than we're presented with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I sort of alluded to in the lecture tonight, uh, after the civil rights era, what we see is the bifurcation, really, of black American society, um, uh, an increasing gap between, you might say, the black haves and the black have-nots, and the, the history and the social networks um, and the institutions that had once united all black people by virtue of a shared history of oppression as it was, um, that crumbled. Um, and so, um, ironically, now you have um, black public intellectuals who are doing pretty well for themselves, Cornel West is another one. Um, it's not that they don't have interesting things to say from time to time, um, it's not that they don't have challenging uh, things to say from time to time, but they have very little organic connection um, to the poorest blacks in America in whose name they often speak. Uh, and that is, uh, I think, a fundamental problem and a attention. Uh, within, within black American society. Well,
0: can I ask a, a follow-up to that,
1: which is you're sort of talking about a certain cognitive
0: dissonance about between their own sort of biography and then what they claim is actually happening to, to blacks as an amorphous mass. How do they reconcile the fact that, you know, they, they, well the activists love to talk about white privilege and that being, you know, what's determining people's outcomes in life, you've got the fact that you've got, you know, Indian... Asian people who've got social mobility and opportunity and you know are accessing the American dream and of course are still coming to the u.s in you know high numbers to as immigrants how do they reconcile that story with the one they tell themselves about black disadvantage
1: well one of two ways um, either they don't that's the first answer uh, or secondly they make arguments around they around the unique nature of the black experience in America. Uh, and you know, I mean, th- and there's something in that yeah. up to a point. Um, you have West Indian blacks coming to America. Well, they've been coming for a very long time and doing uh, much better uh, than native-born blacks. Um, and since the 1960s, there's been massive immigration from Africa. Uh, this, this actually complicates the racial picture significantly in the United States because it's not a simple kind of black-white um issue anymore. Um you know, how how do African Americans relate to Afro Caribbean people, people from Africa? Um it it's not as clear um as skin color? So if we've got
0: this two 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 black Americas. Yet it seems to be that the most prosperous but side of black America is the one that pushes the idea whole idea of reparations, this idea that there is, you know, a historic legacy of slavery that needs to be made up for. Is that actually a phenomenon of a sense of identity politics as well, that in a sense it's it's a it's a cer- identity politics tells you that you're oppressed. Your social reality might be you're not oppressed. But I'll actually trying to find a way through this sort of course to sort of authenticate an identity that is otherwise relatively weak. Mm.
1: Reparations is, I mean, it's you know, as I said in the talk, it's been around for as an issue for for 150 years. Um, it, it is, in my view, bad news for the most disadvantaged African Americans because let's face it, th- we have limited political capital to expend, right? Um, and so you have to be strategic in how you expend it. Um, the argument is often made that. Uh, reparations will open up a discussion about race in America, which the nation needs to have. Uh, I, I would make exactly the opposite argument. Uh, once you go down that path, and if it were ever to happen, it's actually the best way of shutting down any discussion for the reason I said in the talk. Um, if, you, if you pay the debt, you wash your hands of it. Um, and And you actually give people the space... Um, to not take an interest um, um, in the the disadvantaged status of um, people in their midst um, the the other problem I think with reparations for slavery is that it seeks to it, it essentially commodifies um, or tries to commodify. Um, Human suffering from a long time ago. So this idea that those who have inflicted no harm should pay to those who have suffered no direct harm—that's um, it's it's not a tort-based, you know, party A hurts party B, therefore pays. You know, that that's not how it is, and yet. That's precisely the kind of way that reparations for slavery advocates frame it. I think there are far more important issues to talk about. I always think you know politics is about what's possible, um, and nowhere is this more the case than when you're talking about seriously disadvantaged people. You know, You have an obligation to deal in reality, and um, reparations for slavery um, is not a realistic way. To go about things. I
0: think there's a parallel we might be able to draw there with the debate in Australia about recognition because one of the arguments behind recognition and one of the arguments always behind the debate about Indigenous disadvantage here is that, you know, it's a legacy of colonialism. Mm-hmm. Well, My view is that it's actually the worst Indigenous suffering in the remote communities is actually not a product of colonialism but a product of what we've tried to do to make up for colonialism, i.e. create these separatist homelands. Does that argument... Resonate with you?
1: Well, I'm not an in, I'm not an expert on um, uh, Aboriginal politics and Aboriginal history, uh, but the thing I always say is that whether you're talking about the United States or you're talking about Australia, um, nowhere do we need more honest talk than on matters of race, and nowhere do we have less honest talk than on matters of race because people are concerned to be seen to say the right thing rather than actually saying the right thing. And you get nowhere in terms of developing good policies, programs, if you aren't prepared to sit down at the table um, and argue your case in a fair and decent way with people who have got different opinions from yourself.
0: That reminds me of, um, I mentioned Claire Lehman gave the Helen Hughes lecture last year, and she was talking about uh, critical theory, which is sort of like the the legitimating ideology behind identity politics. And she was saying how it basically promotes a zero-sum view of the world, that the world's divided between oppressors and oppressed groups. And the point she made very strongly was that if if that analysis is not the right analysis of the problem, Mm -hmm. we will never get to the right solution because you know we're we're addressing the the wrong problem this seems a very timely you know warning in relation to the sort of issues that you're that you're raising in terms of of black politics and and black disadvantage
1: well well I think the issues confronting the poorest blacks um, in the most disadvantaged inner city communities is case in point Uh, that if you're not prepared to speak honestly uh, and openly about the problem you're never you're never going to get to solutions so you're just blowing hot air um, and I, I think it, it is um, m- morally as well as politically problematic um, to be engaging in that kind of way when we're talking about real people's lives. Um, I always say, you know, if, if you're not prepared to concede that agency is real and important, um, then you're not open to any serious transformation, the possibility of any serious change.
0: Let's continue on that theme. I remember when, I can't remember what year it was, but President Obama gave that big keynote speech on the importance of fatherhood. And really, he was, t- he was talking probably implicit, I- implicitly rather than explicitly talking about the black family, and he was sort of raising the sort of issues, without the sort of cultural angst that we saw with you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan and his report on the black family in the, in the early 70s. But I wonder today, given what you've said, if any politician, black or white, could give a similar speech without sort of facing the kind of identity politics backlash, and also, and this might be something that you cop, without being accused of blaming the victims,
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an unhelpful phrase, blaming the victim, because really what that's saying is we we can never talk openly about people. Um, And I think that's precisely what we need to do. Um, But just coming back to the the question, um, uh, I can't imagine any one of the current uh, Democratic candidates giving that kind of speech. And the remarkable thing about that speech... It's the kind of thing that African Americans say all the time when they're talking to each other. <laughs> I mean, you know, I referred to that book, The Black Silent Majority. Um, you know, black Americans have the strongest views on dealing with crime in, in a tough, w- in fairly tough, sort of robust way, because they are disproportionately the victims of crime. Um, they have conservative views on a whole range of social policies. Um, But they are politically liberal because of history really more than anything else. Um, The NAACP leaders who came out and publicly um, attacked Obama in the aftermath of that speech privately conceded um, to friends and colleagues that this is is precisely the kind of conversation we need to have as a community, uh, but we should have it within the community rather than publicly. That was their position. I think that's unfortunate.
0: It um, that reminds me of a phrase that John Hurst taught me, which is that people these days are reverse hypocrites. They say things in private which they won't say in public. Whereas before it was the, it was the else we what we used to do in, in private we we professed differently in
1: public. Yeah, can I say sure. just you mentioned Moynihan and you know he wrote that report in the mid '60s and um, to me it was a fairly uncontroversial report. I mean he said um, there is a history in this country. Uh, and uh, we we do live with the legacy of that. And it, it does have an impact on African-American um, chances in the present. Um, and, you know, he didn't deny that racism remained a factor in American life. He also talked about economic changes um, in the United States that had negatively affected African-Americans. But he also talked about um, issues within the black community that Um, were problematic and that didn't bode well for uh, future upward mobility Um, you know this coincided with you know the welfare state and and other issues and some of the problems I talked about in the lecture tonight around um, two-parent families um, and uh, and so forth. I'm going
0: to ask one more question before I throw it open to the audience and I'll try and tie things up by bringing us back to the issue of, you know, we're at a crossroads, we're going to go one direction or another on these issues, America's going to go one direction or another, and I want to bring it up in the context of talking about the legacy of the most important civil rights leader of the 60s, who is Martin Luther King I'm sure people may be aware of the recent Standpoint article that raised a whole series of allegations about uh, Martin Luther King's private behaviour I think we could say I don't know about the provenance of that. I guess we won't need to see the book because I'm, I'm still a bit suspicious about you know mm. relying on FBI, you know, wiretaps for this and the maliciousness behind <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. But however, if what is being claimed is true, it will raise a lot of a series of questions about you know King, who's n- you know known for, for you know trying this great statement about treating people you know not on the basis of their color but on the basis of their skin, and you know I- that statement in itself is, seems to be out of out of kilter, out of the temper of the times of the uh, whole identity politics idea, which is, you know, we should treat people on the basis of their skin colour, not on the basis of their character. So I want to ask three final questions that you can either decide to answer or not. Mm. One is, how should historians deal with people who might have done great things but have great personal flaws? The second is, will these revelations change the way we view Martin Luther King's achievement and legacy? And the third one is, do you think that the black activists who are, you know, are always looking for ways to, you know, repudiate the American dream? Will they really welcome this book and embrace it as a chance to repudiate, you know, the Hypocrite King's legacy in the Me Too era?
1: Okay. Th- now I might not remember all those three questions, but you can remind me when I when I'm going off course. Um I think it it is it would be wise to be sceptical at this point of some of the claims being made about King, not about um his um, womanising, I mean, I think that is fairly uh, well known and and um, the evidence for that is very clear. Um, but some of the other claims that are being made um, are based on not even uh, transcripts from the FBI but um, um, handwritten notes about transcripts. And we know the FBI was um, crusading against King... Um, You know, I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was obsessed with King. Um, It was sort of quite an unhealthy obsession, really, in the 1960s. So um, I would say, though, that the historian in question, David Garrow, is um, no right-wing historian. I mean, he's a centre-left historian, a very respected biographer of King. I think he's written some of the best scholarship on King. Um, So it will be very interesting to see in years to come when um, the archives open up properly what actually is there Um, the first question was how how should historians you know treat people um, and negotiate tension between the public self and the private self Um, well not not by hiding or glossing over the private self stuff I mean I the, the question for a historian would be are you writing a biography of king or a hagiography and if you're writing the latter You're not writing history. Um, You, you of course, have to uh, weigh the good with the bad. Uh, You have to ground what you're saying in evidence, and it has to be credible. Um, My own view is I don't expect public figures to be saints, um, but I do expect that if they make morality a central figure of their um, political value proposition, that it's fair game to ask questions about it, if issues surface in the public domain, that that is my view. Um, I say that as someone who is who, who has been a great fan of Kings. I mean, um, when I was I think ten, my mother banned conversation about cricket at the dinner table because I was just obsessed with cricket and statistics. And she she actually opened up conversations about Martin Luther King and civil rights, and that's how I got into African American history. Um, So King has long been a bit of a hero for me. But as a historian, um, you know, when I come to look at him, I look at him as a man, as someone who was flawed, who had a public persona, who had a private self. His wife may have had a very different view of him to me, but a biographer certainly has to present the full picture.
0: That's almost almost the answer to the second question. You think it it, will—what about his legacy? Will it affect his legacy?
1: Well, well, interestingly— what we know about King—that he was a philanderer, and that he was—that that, you know, th- there's quite a lot has been written about him plagiarizing part of his PhD. That hasn't affected his legacy. It hasn't affected his legacy, and I'm—and I'm not suggesting it should. By the way, uh, I'm just saying it hasn't. And my speculation about why that is would go something like this: He was assassinated in 1968, right? If King had lived. And had to confront some of the problems we've been discussing tonight—the bifurcation of black society, um, and all the other things that came after '68. Um, the way we think of King and talk of King and remember King might well be very different. Might well be. Um, I don't know for sure, though, of course. Um, and the third question was around black activists. And How will they respond to you? Well, I saw some sort of comment about you know someone saying that he's going to be seen as the Harvey Weinstein or whatever of civil rights, and I think I, I think that is I think that's ridiculous at, at the moment, based on what we know. Um, uh, I think Martin Luther King made wonderful contributions to American democracy. Um, I uh, wish that um, the black community had a leader like that or leaders like that today they may well do, but I don't know about them. Um, um, but who can say it? Thank you. Questions, ladies and gentlemen?
0: John. Let's wait for the microphone, John.
2: Um, oh, if I could just take a couple of minutes, because a well, little bit of background. Uh, first of all, I lived in the south side of Chicago in the 60s, and subsequently lived at other times in the US and visited often. Um your description of race in America is, is very much focused on the blacks. Mm-hmm. And my observation now is that it depends on where you are in America as to what is the race issue. If you're in Detroit, that's certainly the issue. If you're in Chicago, it is one of the issues because in, you've got an increasingly large Hispanic community. If you live elsewhere in the west of the US or the southwest and, and in west Texas, perhaps not quite so much east Texas, then uh, the issue of race is really a matter of the Hispanics. Yeah, and it's become a, a great deal more complicated. In many ways, the, the blacks have become a, a kind of a shrinking relative minority in terms of other groupings and, and, and are viewed, if one was talking about white working class whites, uh, white, sorry, the white working class males, in many places are viewed as less of a, quote, threat, much less of a threat than our Hispanics because you've even got the small towns in the Middle West now and the South which have increasingly large Hispanic communities and it's they who are competing for jobs, who are they who are taking up school places and what have you. And to some degree I regard personally the, the black issues as... Inc- A lot of noise but increasingly less importance. And interestingly, Mr Trump, when he wants to arouse uh, feelings of fear, talks not of the blacks but of Hispanics.
1: Look, I don't disagree with that analysis. Um, I suppose I I used African-Americans, I think I said in the talk, as a a kind of lens to uh, look at the way that increasingly... Americans were talking about race so much as rather than saying that that is the the issue and in fact um you know in our conversation um after the lecture i think we've said that it, to to view american race relations as a black white issue is deeply problematic it's deeply problematic uh, particularly in the aftermath of the relaxation of immigration after 1965 which you know led to Lots of new people from all over the world coming into the United States. Uh, it's complicated certainly by the size, the scale and the growth uh, of the Hispanic community broadly defined. So th- that is now the largest minority group in the United States. And we already see quite a lot of competition between the two. So. Uh, It's interesting that it is still quite common in the United States to use the phrase people of colour because it assumes some kind of unity around an identity that is not white uh, and it is absolutely and utterly problematic to assume that unity. Um, Richard.
3: Michael, you mentioned uh, Helen Hughes and the aspirations that she clearly had that there would be integration of Australian Aborigines into the mainstream of Australia, while H.C. Coombs had a much more paternalistic view of the way in which Aborigines and government support for them might be provided. My view is that Hughes was overwhelmingly correct in what she wanted to do, and I have this strong sense that what we have done since Nugget Hume's Uh, Nugget uh, Coombs time, has been hugely to the disadvantage. And to think if we believe that sustainability must be the primary objective for almost everything we do, but particularly for Aboriginal communities, then surely Hughes was right. And the idea that we can continue to support Aboriginal people in remote locations and expect them to be able to have a better life for them and their children in the future, is gravely mistaken and there should be a major change in the way in which public policy is directed towards trying to achieve comprehensive integration of the Australian Aboriginal community with the whole of the community. And this particularly applies with the current proposal that there would be some apartheid-like special legislative body that would allow for a voice to the parliament from a small minority group that would be separated even more than they are today.
1: Well, let let me say in response to that, just to remind you, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on, um, Aboriginal history and politics, but I will talk at, on the matter of principle. Um, I come from an immigrant family, um, and, you know, integration as a principle was, uh, just expected in our, in, in our house. So when I look at American politics, um, I look at, again, I often go to King. Um, He was a great advocate for integration. He he saw uh, black development in the United States as requiring fundamentally and essentially the integration of black people into the American dream, that there couldn't really be successful separatist development. And you only have to look at, the first phase of the civil rights movement from the mid fifties to the mid sixties and what it achieved, I I don't really see it as a black movement so much as a movement led by black people to make America whole, to make the union more perfect. You only have to compare the achievements of that movement with the black power movement that came after. Lady over here.
4: Hello. I so appreciate this conversation. This is a topic that I've spent a lot of time thinking about because, as you can probably tell, I'm an American. And I recently moved from a neighborhood where the local drug dealer would walk me home so I wouldn't get harassed on the street. Um, And uh, what you were talking about with dealing with crime in a robust way and that um, desire within the black neighborhoods and the black community, I have a question about distrust of the police. Mm. I've noticed that that is very prevalent in those neighborhoods. Uh, do you think that that is actually contributing to the high crime rates and the high murder rates, and if so, what would your solution be to fix that?
1: When you say the high murder rates the um,
4: high murder rate of um, black males in those neighborhoods, and yeah, just that over policing or like aggressive policing has caused distrust um, would that yeah. be a factor in the high
1: crime yeah that there's a long history in the United States of um, distrust between. African American community, you know, urban communities, particularly, and the police. Um, And um, that has not changed, really. Um, What we've seen in the post-civil rights era is, as I said earlier, the black middle class moving out of black neighbourhoods. And as that has happened, you have had uh, the black poor, often jobless, left behind, and then over-policed. often in a heavy-handed manner, no doubt. But interestingly, as I I said in the talk, um, a lot of black people in those communities were strong advocates for aggressive policing because they wanted to feel safe in their communities as they once had. Um, I I think um, it is one of the big challenges um, uh, for the United States, particularly in in so far as race relations uh, between blacks and whites is concerned, I mean, I quoted a number of statistics tonight, but when you, when you boil it down to its essence, um, th- the distrust uh, and the, the over-policing does actually have implications for arrest rates. It does ap- have implications for incarceration rates. And that then has a kind of trigger effect on black communities, black families. And so, you know, you're caught in this very, very difficult kind of circular problem. Um, that you know, some brave president will have to come along and break one day. Um, but I don't see who that is at the moment. I don't think it's the the current president. It wasn't the former president. Um, and after watching the um, the Democratic uh, candidates for debate, I don't think it will be one of them either. We might have time <coughs> for two more quick questions if we can. So one here. So uh, what's your advice to someone, let's say they're first or or second year uni, they're doing a bachelor of gender studies or African-American studies or indigenous studies and they have a genuine interest in helping their community or their interest group. And they're stuck in this field where the prevailing orthodoxy is the complete opposite of your, I think, very reasonable and balanced opinion. So should they stay in the field and try to change things from the inside or should they switch to bachelor of commerce and get a real job? No, look, um, I think they should absolutely um, stay in the area that they're passionate about, if that's history, gender, whatever it is, Um, and they should be strong advocates for their positions, and um, that is what university life at its best is or should be. And, you know, we were talking about this earlier tonight, that... um, My view has always been that if there's a space you're not particularly comfortable with or about, um, the proper response, the best response, is never to stay away from the space. It's to walk into it and change it. Because otherwise you're just committing yourself to standing on the sidelines and getting embittered about the world and how your career in gender studies was... Thwarted by people on this side of politics or that side of politics, um, I, I think um, people should have the argument
0: on behalf of all their parents. They should they should just <laughs> play the game, get their degrees, and get out. Can, can, can I just
1: make one <laughs> final point on this? I mean, I have friends from across the political spectrum. I you know I have friends who are green voters. I have, and he's not sitting next to me now, but um, <laughs> uh, I I have I have friends all across the spectrum, and we we have very robust debates. Um, and there is an alternative to that, and it's not that pretty, <laughs> right? When, when people don't do that. that. That is democracy, really. Quickly, final
5: question here. Uh, hi, um, I'm American also, as you can tell. Uh, I'm also Mexican. So I, I, um, I'm really interested in this subject. What I do notice, though, in the conversation is that on the opposite side, the kind of intersectional woke type are speaking very forcefully. They have no problem calling the people that they disagree with racists. They have no problem saying that these disparities are part of uh, a deep racism bigotry from the society, the American society. While I see everyone on the other side, anyone center left, left, reasonable, being very cautious about the way they speak. If you want to talk about race, the first thing you have to say is that you think Trump is kind of a jerk because he says bad things, which I think is the least of the concerns when it comes to Trump. I'm more concerned about him starting a war with Iran because he saw something on Fox News, frankly, than if he said something about some black person a couple of months, it's just not that important to me. So if you really wanna change the culture, if you think that identity politics and uh, all of these issues around race are actually harmful, don't you need to stop playing by the rules of the far left and kind of premising, no, I'm not a racist, now here's everything that I have to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. Um, and I'd like to think there are people who are doing that. Um, I mean, there are some great books out um, at the moment. Um, the pr- the problem is, I think, that um, on the left, uh, uh, people who are, I suppose, for want of a better way of putting it, moderate leftists are dr- drowned out and howled down by people who are anything but moderate. Um, I think there's probably a, not as much an issue of scale on the right but uh, I think there's a similar there is a similar kind of dynamic going on there as well. I actually think people on the center right and the center left have things to say to each other that are worth saying and that are compelling. And I always say um you know m- my first year at uni I was taught politics by a cold warrior um who you know if you mentioned even the welfare state he would start frothing at the mouth and say you wanted to oversee a communist revolution and you know where is your Che Guevara t-shirt on dachi and so on and i was taught history by a marxist and they were the two best teachers i had and what that actually taught me is that uh the right defined in an old kind of way and the left defined in an old kind of way can actually have a debate because it's sort of a debate within the same family. There's an there there is an acceptance that political economy matters, that that economics matter, that poverty is universal. You know, whether you're black or white, it, it matters to both groups or to other groups. Um, it's it it is more difficult though to have a debate with people who don't accept that those things matter, and for whom identity concerns trump uh, objective material conditions. Um, Milton Friedman and my first-year Marxist lecturer would have a great time at a dinner party, uh, and they would go back and forth, but neither of them would be able to talk much with Hayden White or Michel Foucault or any of those sorts of people. Uh, Before we finish tonight, I would like
0: to welcome a very distinguished and good friend of the CIS to the stage to give a vote of thanks for Michael for his uh, lecture this evening. April Parmalee is the Chief Executive Officer of the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia. Will you please welcome April to the stage?
6: Thanks Jeremy. It's great to see you all here. This is a really interesting audience and I was thinking, why are you all here? is it because you saw a dashing intellectual on the, on the invitation? Is it because you knew there'd be a, a thoughtful interlocutor up here on the stage? Is it because you wanted to come in from the dark and the cold and have some wine and cheese? Is it because it's July 4th? And I was thinking, why did I want to be here? First of all, it's because I love CIS. CIS gave me my first job when I moved to Australia 16 years ago. And that's where I first met Helen Hughes, who I also adored. She not only taught me everything I learned about Aboriginal people. She took us under her wing. She kind of adopted my three-year-old son and gave us four 800-page books about Aboriginal history, and said, "Maybe not this year, but in a couple of years, Henry will want to read these and understand Abro- Aboriginal history." And she was um, she was our stand-in godmother when uh, it was grandparents day at school she would go with my children so she is near and dear to my heart and it's wonderful that CIS has named this lecture in honor of her and has invited such distinguished speakers to come and deliver the lectures each year. I was also interested in being here because the first time I heard about Australia back in America was from one of my unfortunately racist relatives who thought Australia would be a great place to move to because they didn't have anything but white people there under the white Australia policy. And that was the first time I had heard about Australia as a little child in America. Um, I recently saw that the UNSW American alumni have raised money to put up a statue of Martin Luther King on campus. I was born the week Martin Luther King was assassinated, and my grandmother couldn't get out of New York because of the race riots up there. So that had some meaning for me. I worked for a president, who talked about the soft bigotry of low expectations, which our speaker alluded to. But most of all, I came to hear an impassioned, thoughtful, robust conversation about a real hot button topic. And so first of all, I'd like to thank the CIS and Tom for never shying away from these kinds of things. I fear that we are moving into our corners in some parts of life and going further down the rabbit holes with people who agree with the, the views that we hold. And I think that's a very dangerous thing for us all to do. I think having these discussions, showing up to hear people who you may or may not agree with, and expressing your opinions is one of the most important things that we can do. So thank you all for being here, and thank you for CIS for hosting this and, and inviting Michael here. I'd also like to thank Jeremy for being such a thoughtful and empathetic questioner, asking some very hard but fair questions about the topics that we heard tonight. And most of all, I would like to thank our speaker, who I admire his ability to speak, his thoughtfulness, the data that he collected, and the questions that he raised for all of us. I know I'll go home tonight asking myself What I think about some of the things that he brought up. And I think that's the most important feeling that we can all have coming away from something. Not that we got a whole bunch of answers, but that we have even more questions to ask ourselves. So, would you please join me in thanking everyone here tonight?